HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Purchase a copy today at southernfarmandgarden.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. Kat Johnson kicked the season off with an episode about food and football, so now we're turning to one of my favorite sports, talking about cookbooks. We'll take a sneak peek at a few recipe breakthroughs that Rose Levy-Berenbaum discovered while working on her 12th cookbook. You know, so this was such a eureka thing. People ask me if I still keep learning... And yeah, just thinking about it and trying to find a better way. It happens. And hear about the challenges of writing a book about alcohol from HRN host Souther Teague. The history of drinking is very blurry because people were drinking and no one was writing, taking notes. Plus, we'll get all the expert dish about the most exciting cookbook titles heading to bookstores this fall. Like jazz music has been a part of American cuisine for, for centuries. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the next episode drops. All right, I am here in the Governor's Hospital facility uh, on Madison Street in Manhattan, sitting with Jimmy Carboni, host of Beer Sessions Radio, owner of Jimmy's Number 43, producer of lots and lots of events that listeners you've probably been to. Thanks, Jimmy, for letting me come and track you down here in the hospital. Well, thanks, Harry. Uh, usually I'm drinking a beer when I'm on the radio. <laughs> um, it's been about three months because I've been in the hospital, and I appreciate all your support and all the Heritage Radio. But Harry's been so good to come and visit me, and a lot of the Heritage Radio people have been... Yes! been visiting me and supporting me but um yeah i haven't had a beer in, in three months so i'm dying <laughs> to get back to it um, uh, is there anything else that you're missing that you haven't had in a long time that when you get out next week you're looking forward to well you, you've been pretty great last week you brought me um eli sussman's food was yeah. that some, some samisa samisa that was pretty great and today you brought me some yugoslavian yeah uh like burek chavabi and burek yeah, yeah. from so. a restaurant in uh long island city I think it's just diversity of tastes, you know, sure. from being sick and also when you're in the hospital, the food isn't really that, it, it's very simple. I mean, I've, yeah. uh, hospital food is hospital food, you know, it's cafeteria food, but just the different flavors. Like yesterday, some, there's a place called Woo's, it's a corner wonton shop on East Broadway on Essex Street, Lower East Side. It, they advertise it as a, um, gosh, my brain's going, man. <laughs> Anyways, amazing dumplings and broth and uh yeah, it's just different flavors and tastes. I think when I was first in the hospital, I was craving ice cream. 
But I was also craving in July when it was really hot. I really wanted some good craft beer, right. and uh, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't drink that. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. well, we're really excited to have you back at the Heritage Studios on the 18th for beer sessions uh, coming back. So we were talking earlier about the kind of the events that you do and the the ideas behind Jimmy's 43, and that it really was about promoting other people. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if this time that you've had in recovering, and I have to tell those of you, you guys can't see Jimmy, but he's doing great. He's up, he's walking, he's, he walked all the way across the, across the floor today uh, so we could have lunch together, which is, you've come a long way, right? Walked with a walker. I mean, so yeah. Harry, if you don't know, uh, I was dealing with a spinal infection and had spine surgery in June. Um, so I'm, I'm really limited. I've been able to walk with a walker. And uh, I'm not trying to not be in a wheelchair, but um, it, it wasn't a fun summer. But it's, yeah. it's brought me a lot of realizations of just what I appreciate in, in my life. And, um, you know, one thing I found, whether with doing radio shows or events, I find that it's, the stories, I try to make the story about the other people, that yeah. other people are really more interesting. Um, everybody's got a good story, but there's so many people, especially in New York City, doing food, craft beer, now cider, spirits. There's so many great people to, to tap into. They all have a great story. I mean, there's never, there's always way more people that I than I could interview or, right. or could host sure. for something. <laughs> but going back, we were talking about, you know, 19, uh, 2005, I opened Jimmy's number 43. And at the time, I felt that the local food movement was really strong. And there were groups like Slow Food NYC, Edible, Brooklyn Edible Manhattan were yep. really just starting. And it seemed that, that, that people were really aware of, of local, local food, buying locally, supporting farms. And um, it's changed a lot. But back then, you know, that, that created an impetus for some new projects. Some of them were just hosting events where you, you'd be tasting, like Ann Sachs would be just, had opened the first American-only uh, artisan cheese shop in New York. Yeah, which and now you, I feel like doesn't sound like a big thing, right? Like it doesn't sound like a weird thing for someone to say, oh, I'm, I have an only American cheese shop. But back then that was a big deal. Yeah, I mean, we were used to getting, you know, the, the, the great you know, French, Italian, and, and Spanish cheeses. And, but uh, to really focus on the American was a, big, was a big change. Yeah, and farmstead cheeses, which, you know, set her above everybody. She set the bar, but then I would do a tasting with her and, and someone, a local artisan producer like Rick's Picks Pickles. And then we'd have Six Point uh, Beer because Six Point was the first new brewery in New York in over 10 years. In yeah. 2005, there, there had been only four breweries, and suddenly there were five. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it's all different than now. But then yeah. that was we were trying to just showcase what, what we liked. And, and it was also relationships, people that we knew who were starting out the new food and beverage businesses. And from that, you know, we did things like the Slow Food Snail of Approval was really important that back then to us. And... It meant that we had to go shop at the green market in Union Square like four times a week yep. for as many things as we could. And, and an offshoot of that was one of the former board members, Ed Yowell, who's been part of Slow Food NYC mm. and Green Markets for a long, long time. Um, he started. We started doing events kind of in tandem with Kathy Irway and some of the, like Matt Tim, some of those yeah. cook-off scenes. Yeah. And um, with Kathy, she did like a risotto cook-off, a chowder cook-off. But Ed suggested, well, we wanted to promote green market farmers' sausages. And you don't really think about that so much. But, you know, at the time, like Patrick Martins of Heritage Foods was saying that to save the world, everyone should eat ground meat, which could yep. also be sausages because you want to use the whole animal. And there were so many farmers, whether they were sheep farmers, pork farmers, that had sausages just at the Union Square Green Market alone that we wanted to devise a whole event around it. And he suggested doing cassoulet. Um, thinking that was sauces. Now we think of it as beans. Right. But right. back then, that was the first... And we did the Castellet cook-off, and it became very popular. 
something that we've done every year for 10 years. Um, and it, it, it evolved to becoming something that like Glenwood, based in the Hudson, and some other uh, teachers based in France came to do, sure. celebrate the beans. Right. So it really yeah, became a, those great beans yeah, a whole state. thing about heirloom beans. And yeah. it's, it's kind of taken me through a whole, I've been lucky there's that. And, you know, we started doing offshoots, like a brisket event. Again, uh, my friend Jake Schiffman worked at, still works at Food Network for a long time. And he, after we were doing these different tasting and cook-off events, he was like, we should do a brisket event, a brisket event. And one day we did it, and it was really popular, and we had a bunch of barbecue friends, and I had helped Josh Zersky do the first big Metopia on Governor's Island. Right, right, I remember that. In 2010, so we had, we had kind of this fresh crop of, of barbecue and meat-centric people. Okay. So after two years, we, we started doing Brisket King of New York City, which has really taken off. I mean, it definitely means something. I mean, two years ago, we had a bunch of uh, Texas barbecue experts, and Aaron Franklin of Franklin Bar- Franklin's in Austin, Texas, came up, and Billy Durney, hometown barbecue, got really involved. Those he won in 2015, and then 16 and 17, he was really instrumental in, in, in orchestrating the judging and, and some of the way it evolved. And um, but all those things started at Jimmy's Number 43 because yeah. we had a we had an extra space, we had a back room, and it's kind of like the lesson of in New York, if you get space, yeah, use it for you something. Can, you can do things <laughs> with it. And I didn't really necessarily want to run a straight restaurant. I'd done that in the 90s. I had a little place called Muggsy's Chow Chow. In the day-to-day grind of, of, of cooking and kind of doing service every night, I really couldn't keep up with it. So I kind of wanted to have a place that had food but also had rotating different. It wasn't really so much events as much as that other people could book things. So you'd have an arts group or a theater group or a reading group come in, and it was their night in, in the other room. And then people like, you know, Slow Food Offshoot, Slow Money wanted to first start having meetings. Or another cool group, uh, the Food Plus Tech Connect, mm-hmm. you know, uh, these are offshoots of Slow Food that had maybe people that more in the tech world. You know, they did hacker, yeah. hackerati uh, yeah, yeah, get-togethers yeah, yeah. and yeah, things like that that I'm kind of devolving into. But, um, you know, the, the whole thing that letting – there's so many people with, with interesting stories and showcasing what they want to do and giving people a place – uh, I mean, one of the their that, own that I've always found you know? so interesting about that is that you end up with this sort of interesting mix, right? You talk about Franklin Barbecue and Aaron Franklin coming up, but then you have people who are new to barbecue or new to brisket who, are, you know, I'm sure have taken part. It makes me think of Pig Island, which just happened this past weekend, where you have someone like Rodrigo Duarte who is not part of this kind of new food movement at all. I mean, he's got a butcher shop that is, he's what, third generation, fourth generation in Newark, but... He's just been doing this incredible stuff, incredible charcuterie for a really long time, and now he's been coming to Pig Island for a few years, and he's right there. He's right in Newark. He's right across the river, and all these, you know, lots of people don't even know that his shop it's, exists. It's, that's a great example. Um, and Rodrigo's actually, he's a, grew up on a, a multi-generational pig farm in Portugal. So he's brought over the old world, you know, charcuterie and, and butchering uh, that they would have use in Portugal 100 years ago. Yeah. And that's something I'm really interested in is traditional foods. I think you're doing that with vinegar. Yep. Um, I, and I see that happening. People talking about the natural wines. When you go to like a, a natural wine event, what you're really meeting are people that have, you know, long-time family estates and they're going back to making wine and, you know, being natural practices. Sure. And the way they grow the grapes and, and their farming practices are what their grandparents did. Yeah. Or you someone know. like Steve Wood with cider. Right, I mean, at Farnham Hill, where he is really trying to focus in and remind people that there was a huge cider industry and lots of people made cider on their farms before Prohibition, and then it kind of disappeared because it never really came back after that, where beer came back, spirits came back. 
Yeah, you know, and, and it took cider a while, partly because it's an agricultural product. Right. So we didn't really have the the apple, you know, the varieties of apples that you need to make good cider. Good point, yeah. And there really wasn't a market either. But I'm lucky, too. Cider Week New York, uh, because of people I knew through New Amsterdam Market, um, when the first Cider Week New York was, was being put together back in 2011, I agreed to let them host an organizational meeting in the back room of Jimmy's number 43. And then when they rolled out the Cider Week, they needed a last-minute place to do the first press and trade tasting. <laughs> I also let them do it at Jimmy's number 43, which was a great place to host those kind of things. Yeah. So I feel like since day one, I've got to be part of Cider Week. But going back to Pig Island, Rodrigo Duarte, um, you know, people often think of these meat events as, as, as barbecue centric and I've never really been a barbecue guy I've got to know a lot of barbecue guys but, but Rodrigo Duarte at Casiero Ibon in Newark he's very interesting because it was through our friend Joe DiStefano he's got a, a, a charcuterie masters event and, and, and a few years ago I hosted uh, the charcuterie masters judging at Jimmy's number 43 so they had like hundreds of different charcuterie products from all over the country that people had submitted and that's kind of how I got to know Rodrigo so it's it's like there's a mix of you know, whether it's meat or cider or anything, there's so many different tacks on it. And yeah. that's that's what I love. I love discovering it and, and seeing new directions. And with the Brisket King event, what was really great, and I think the original idea with brisket was we thought of it as a kind of a New York kind of ethnic food. You know, whether you were Italian or Jewish, right. we all had memories of, and it wasn't a, really, a, to a me brisket. it wasn't, yeah. I, I wasn't a barbecue guy, so I never sure. thought of barbecue brisket. And I liked, I liked braised brisket. I remember having a memory... I was lucky that one time Sarah Jenkins, who's the Porcena chef, was a chef at one of my old restaurants. And one day I walked in and I smelled this most amazing smell. It reminded me of my grandfather. And basically she had just kind of braised a, a, a beef brisket in, in the oven. And she, she took it out and just a slice of that meat with the juices on a piece of bread was one of the flavor moments of my life. And I always felt that that kind of simple cooking is better than you get in most restaurants because sure. you get, go through the prep and then it's kind of held. And then there's always some right. new process when they're serving it. Yeah. But this is what I love about being in the scene is getting it. The, the cooks, as like Robbie Richter, who people know as he was the first master at Hill Country Barbecue in New York, yep. then opened with Zach Palaccio, the Fatty Q in Brooklyn. I remember being, again, at one day Fatty Q around the time of the first Metopia, and we went to see Robbie. And he was just playing around with his brisket. So brisket, again, just came right up. You know, that was rested. a fun place to go visit. I remember going yeah. visiting Robbie back there. With the and it came out. It, it just it had time to rest. And I had, I had a slice on a piece. Of, it was a thing with white bread with this kind of chili paste. And um, those moments are always stand out for me. And that's why I love being in the industry. Yeah. You know, I love being on the backside of it, especially yeah. with the festivals or doing the radio show. I just love being on the backside, getting to know the producers and the industry people. This episode is brought to you by Southern Farm and Garden, a beautiful handcrafted agricultural journal. Each issue features stories about food history, seasonal recipes, artisanal products, and the amazing people who bring it to your table. Packed with stunning photography, the content is fresh and educational. Southern Farm and Garden takes you behind the scenes to meet farmers, gardeners, wineries, chefs, and artists who are passionate about creating healthy, unique, and sustainable food and products that you can enjoy all year. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Purchase a copy today at southernfarmandgarden.com. 
Foodtank.com named Southern Farm and Garden one of the top 20 magazines for people who eat, cook, and grow, praising it for connecting readers with the food, the farms, and the stories behind our food system. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at southernfarmandgarden.com. So, so, I mean, being, you know, so the time in the hospital, obviously, you know, has not been easy, has not been fun, right? But it has given you time to reflect on sort of what, what happens when you get out, I'm, I'm guessing, right? And so, you know, what is, what is, what is the future for you? Like, where, where is your focus going to be? Obviously, you know, you're not yet back to 100%, so I don't think uh, running, a, running a restaurant till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning is in the cards for you starting in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you know, is it these events? Is it other things that you have on the radar? I mean, if, in an ideal world, if a few years ago, I probably would have opened a, a larger venue, something that could host events with outdoor space. And I kind of realized that that wasn't really my forte, that I, that I really probably shouldn't be running a place. Um, I feel like I, I'm open to a lot of new experiences. And um, I got really lucky this year. Last year when I knew that Jamie's number 43 was kind of on its way out, it did close the summer of 2017. Um, I got into a, a fellowship. There's a f- foundation called Robert Sterling Clark Foundation, and they put together a group called the Sterling Network. And there's about 50 of us got selected, many of whom work for city government, um, some of whom there's a woman named Rosmia who runs a fund for the public housing she brought in a lot of food people like Liz Newmark, mm. and they, they're cultivating uh, a number of home-based uh, food producers from New York City public housing. So there's a lot of cool things. Um, you know, there's a lot of cool things going on, intersection of government and food. And I, I, I was on a Governor Cuomo uh, a working a beer, craft beer working committee a few years ago with the Secretary of Agriculture upstate. And um, I've had some, you know, insight into the workings of government, how it can, how it can impact food and, and beverage producers. And I've been lucky through my radio show to talk to guys like Steve Hindi of Brooklyn Brewery, yeah. talk about zoning issues for, you know, right. food manufacturing. Yeah. Um, so I feel like there's, there's a, I feel like for the skills that I've had and the experiences I've had, I really do want to work more with government or with nonprofits that are working with government. And I don't think it's necessarily going to be creating events, uh, in that capacity, it's more about bringing people together. Sure. I mean, it sounds like a perfect marriage of your behind-the-scenes and your knowledge of people and of the scene itself and of the food world and working behind the scenes to celebrate and promote others, which is exactly what yeah, we're Yeah, we're on the cusp. I mean, there's things like, you know, all these different food markets where people – it started with New Amsterdam Market and Smorgasbord, but there's so many markets. People love the, the pop-up feeling. Yep. They love going to market where they can buy 20 different food items – Instead of just being stuck with one restaurant, yep. and and that just shows it showcases how many different producers there are in New York City, of all of all sorts. You know, I, I still remember uh, Jessamine from Hot Bread Kitchen, and how she came on the scene. It was about twelve years ago, and the city really got behind her at La Marquetta up in yep. Harlem. They really realized that this was a, not just a unique person who had great skills, but that there was a need for what she was doing. And, and you know, she basically immigrant women yeah. are kind of taught how to work in a bakery and take their traditional recipes and turn them into commercial yeah. uh, ventures. And um, if you ever go to Union Square Green Market, you see the hot break kitchen, there's a few things there that I love. Yeah, there's some really, there's, there's great stuff coming out of it. Well, I mean, you know, that, I, I think it's, uh, it's super exciting. And obviously, you know, uh, I wish you the, a swift recovery and, you know, and, uh, and Heritage Radio can't wait to have you back on the air. 
Thanks, Harry. I really appreciate you coming to see me. You've been, you, you, you should just uh, hang out with Harry and you should pick different meal for every, every day of the week because <laughs> you're so great. You have such great knowledge. What are places that you like, Harry? I mean, you took the Yugoslavian place yeah, in so, Long so, City. So the Yugoslavian place, in, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to totally uh, I'm gonna screw up the name because my, my uh, Yugoslavian accent is terrible. But uh, it is called uh, Cevabzinica Sarajevo. Uh, and it's at 3718 34th Avenue in Long Island City. And it's this little hole in the wall that I used to go to years ago when I used to do television work at Kaufman Astoria, right around the corner there. Um, and it's great. I mean, they have, you know, these, these traditional kind of things. You're talking about, like, celebrating these traditional foods. And for me, that's one of the things that I love about New York. I mean, I, I love chefs who are pushing the envelope and doing new things and doing fusion and that kind of thing. But I also love the fact that, like, I don't have to go to Yugoslavia to taste what lunch might be like yeah. in Yugoslavia. I can get Burek. I can get the Yugoslavian sausages. Um, and it's delicious. And then, you know... The next day, I can go somewhere like Samisa, where I brought you lunch from last week. And, you know, those guys are doing it. Granted, it's their take, but they're doing, a you know, a delicious shawarma. They're doing a roast chicken with these Middle Eastern flavors. Um, they're doing a hummus. They're doing, uh, you know, they're, they're doing pitas uh, and that kind of thing. And, Jimmy, you know, you pointed out it was funny that I brought pitas twice in a row. Both of these, you know, these kind of things are, are interested in pitas. Um, you know, and then, that's what I'm craving. They don't have that on the hospital menu, I guess. Well, if you ever make a grilled, p- if you ever have a simple grilled pizza recipe for the dough, if you actually put it on a grill, it, it like you know a very simple pizza recipe, you know, pizza dough recipe. You put it on the grill, and it gets little grill marks. But, but the way it heats up, it almost becomes like a puffy pita. Right, because it steams. Like the water inside yeah. from the grill is going to steam and heat up and blow up. Yeah. For sure. So though these are kind of basic breads. But yeah. I want to ask you, you do this thing. Let's just keep going. You, yeah, yeah. Your sumo stew, something you do with Michael <laughs> sure. Hall and Turkel. <laughs> sure. So, uh, you know, it, it's funny you bring that up. So we were Michael and I were just planning the next sumo stew is going to be in November at the Brooklyn Brewery. We've done it at the Brooklyn Kitchen for years. We've done it there a lot because, again, you point out we do have space, right? And if you have space in New York City, that's the thing that's hard to come by. We do like to do it in other somewhat larger venues, and Brooklyn Brewery has been a great supporter of it. Um, SumoStew.com is where you find out about it, but it is a really fun, really big food event celebrating Japanese food and sumo culture. So in Japan, the sumo tournaments are a huge deal. They're 15 days long, and they happen six times a year. That gives us lots of opportunity here in the U.S. for having events. And the event is centered around watching sumo. It's very rare to be able to see sumo in the United States. Now, this isn't live. We don't have sumo wrestlers here yet. It's on my agenda for the next few years. <laughs> Back in the 80s, they did an exhibition uh, at Madison Square Garden. I actually, a couple years ago in Japan, met a former sumo wrestler who'd been at MSG in the 80s and had wrestled there. And so I was talking with him about how we, he's, a, he's a coach now. Could we get it to come back to New York? But, you know, sumo is a sport where, you know, we think maybe on the outside these guys are just like big fat guys running into each other. I mean, they're incredibly strong. They're incredibly well-trained. There's a ton of technique that goes into it. You know, these guys weigh 3, 350, 400 pounds. They can do 50, 60 push-ups without even like a blink. So if you imagine how hard it is to push-up if you weigh 160, imagine how hard it is to do a push-up if you weigh 400 pounds, right? You're adding an extra 240 to that push. 
Uh, and, you know, at sumo matches in Japan, it's an all-day event. You know, there's eight hours of matches every single day. People go, they sit, they eat, they drink beer. So the same thing happens at sumo stew. Your ticket gets you a bento box, and we involve local restaurants. So we try to have five different restaurants. They each prepare a dish. And we have sponsors, much like a lot of your events, Jimmy, where we get tofu from, uh, you know, Hodo Soy in California, and we get meat, sometimes from Heritage Foods USA from Patrick, sometimes from uh, Happy Valley Meat, other places, and we get noodles from Sun Ramen, and then we provide that to the restaurant, so the chef makes a dish for the bento. Then you come in, you get beer, obviously, of one kind or another. In this case, coming up November, will be the Brooklyn Brewery. We've done it at Magnolia Brewing in San Francisco, had their beer on tap for that event. There's Nika Whiskey's been a supporter since the very beginning, so there's always a whiskey cocktail made by some great uh, bartender from, from the area, from New York in this case. Then we have Mizu Shochu, uh, who are a shochu supporter, so they come and they pour shochu. And then we usually have some non-alcoholic beverages as well. We usually have some tea. We have a range of different tea importers that we've worked with over the years, um, and then some other you know, Japanese sodas and that kind of thing. And then the real... the, the uh, the dish for which the event is named is chonkonabe, which is sumo stew. Chonkonabe is a very hearty stew that the wrestlers eat every day pretty much, and it's really just a mishmash. It's whatever they have around. Sometimes it's pork meatballs with vegetables. It's always a mixture of vegetables and meat in this very hearty stew. It's eaten with rice. They eat bowls and bowls of it, and so we have somebody, you know, some restaurant make it and serve it out of a huge pot, and basically you get a bento box, you get a couple of drink tickets, and you get as many bowls of chonkonabe as you want to eat. Traditionally, chonkonabe is made from chicken uh, because, as I said to you the last time I brought you lunch, I brought you chicken because the sumo wrestlers eat chicken on match days because they want to stay on their two feet like a chicken so i was hoping that by feeding you chicken last week that would help you to be able to stand up longer on your feet so fish on the other days but chicken on the match days yeah exactly chicken on the match days and you know and it's a big party and we watch matches and we you know we have a big raffle you know we always try i always do and i know you do too with your food events to always try and have there be some kind of donation or supporting aspect of it whether that's to folks who don't have food or to some nonprofit. in the case of sumo stew we always do a raffle um usually it's to help the Japan Society, um, great nonprofit that supports Japanese culture here in New, in New York. That's great, man. And shochu. Yeah. It, yeah, I mean, shochu's really coming up. I just recently tasted the first shochu distilled in New York City uh, last week, actually. There's a tiny little shochu company that's starting up uh, inside of Moto Spirits. I don't know if you know those guys out in Bushwick. Um, they have a tiny little still, and they make these uh, Southeast Asian-inspired spirits. I guess the, the one of the founders was motorcycling through, I think, Cambodia and came into this village and they had this like still and they served in this distilled apple beverage and so he started they started making it here so these guys are as wow, offshoot of that are making shochu and talking about Japanese culture the sake place in, in uh, Sunset Park Brooklyn Kura yeah have you been over there I yet? have have you I mean have you, have you had did you have a chance to go before you it's on my list it's one of the places <laughs> I want to get them on, on my show I can I can connect you to them they're wonderful their sake is some of the best I think in the world. So, I mean, it's saying a lot for a couple of American guys making it in Brooklyn. Um, but, you know, everybody that I've brought there, Japanese or not, has absolutely loved it. Local fresh sake. Yeah, it really is. And and their tasting room in Industry City is really, you know, it's a beautiful space. And you can try some stuff that you really can't get outside of Japan. You can get Moromi, which is like the first... Uh, you know, the very beginnings of the sake process where it's really fresh fermented and hasn't been aged at all. Um, and basically they just pour that right out of their fermenters and you can taste it, which is something you really can't get unless you go to a sake brewery. 
All right, man. Awesome. Well, thanks, Jimmy, for letting me come down here right, and bother thanks you. Thanks for inviting me uh, on. I, I think you have some more physical therapy to get to, uh, and uh, we'll see you back in the studio soon. All right. Thanks, thanks a lot. Everybody. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do me a favor and leave a review of the show if you liked it, and you can reach out to me if you have any questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can find me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.